Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Europe cannot stay united without the United States. There is no moral center in Europe. Hold on a minute. Is that the same Joe Biden who, as a senator, blasted Europe, not only for hesitating to invade, bomb, and dismember Yugoslavia back in 1999, but scolding their behavior for two centuries? You know, the same NATO allies he's been pushing into hybrid warfare in Ukraine against Russia and a continental ensuing economic crisis back home. While Biden, now the U.S. president, well, pretty much watches it all play out from across the ocean as a kind of spectator sport. Here's a little more of that Biden rant, a U.S. commercial for endless wars that today does little besides enriching in billions of dollars the U.S. military-industrial complex and their compliant politicians, along with color revolution propaganda. Europe cannot stay united without the United States. There is no moral center in Europe. When in the last two centuries had the French or the British or the Germans or the Belgians or the Italians moved in a way to unify that continent to stand up to this kind of genocide? When have they done it? The only reason anything is happening now is because the United States of America finally, finally is understanding her role. And in the Arts Express Not Unrelated, one side to every story corporate media watch episode this week, the Ukrainian Guantanamo. What's it all about? And why haven't we heard about the secret torture prisons and those disappeared? We need to see reporters asking Zelensky, where are all these prisoners who have been disappeared and never heard from again? The Grey Zone's Dan Cohen, journalist and documentary filmmaker with Max Blumenthal of Killing Gaza, filed this report about the Ukraine Guantanamo with RT. Currently, the SBU is rounding up anyone accused of sympathy for Russia. A new report has alleged the Ukrainian security service has used a detention centre to torture prisoners of war and Ukrainians suspected of having pro-Russian sympathies. Ukrainian secret services' use of torture in prisons has previously been covered by the United Nations and Amnesty International in their reports. According to those documents, the SBU has a number of compounds in several cities across Ukraine where people have allegedly been unofficially detained and tortured for having pro-Russian views. We spoke to the author of the report, Dan Cohen, who said such practices should have consequences. The report contains testaments of people who shared their experiences of detention in one such prison. They used a lighter to heat up a needle, then put it under my fingernails. The worst was when they put a plastic bag over my head and suffocated me, and when they held the muzzle of a Kalashnikov rifle to my head and forced me to answer their questions. It was like a small Guantanamo. I was told if it wasn't for my second passport, I'd be killed. I don't know how much of that was to influence and scare me, or how much it was real. So anyone who speaks Russian, anyone who uh, um, is is thought to be um, in support of the uh, Russian offensive inside Ukraine um, is likely to be put into this torture prison and interrogated and beaten. My investigation contains testimony from two men who were tortured inside uh, the SBU headquarters and a sports complex or gym attached to it. And they gave me accounts of um, extreme torture, beatings, um, where where prisoners were bleeding from their mouths. Um, One man had uh, hot needles stuck under his fingernails. Um, He said that there were two men from Belarusia who were tortured to death. Um, So it's clear and it's been documented not only by myself, but by Amnesty International and the United Nations that the Ukrainian security service, the SBU, uh, tortures prisoners. We need to see reporters asking Zelensky, where are 
these prisoners who have been disappeared and we never and we've never heard from again. Um, and if they've been killed or tortured, as they obviously have, there need to be um, th these are these are crimes that need to be uh, there needs to be accountability for them. This sort of torture uh, fits a geopolitical agenda um, in in support of the United States and uh, European Union against Russia. And so, um, while the U.S. and EU claim to be um, supporting democracy and 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 for freedom, um, it's obvious that you know anyone who is unlucky enough to end up in one of these torture prisons. Um, may not come out alive. So there's a very clear double standard, and this has nothing to do with human rights or democracy. Um, it's all about U.S. empire. Thank you, Dan Cohen. You're listening to Arts Express, and next on the show, Lauren Elise Birmingham, alias Lala Kent, is an actress known for the reality TV series called Vanderpump Rules, but she's more recently written a book about her life, Give Them Lala, focusing on her struggles, among other things, as a recovering alcoholic in the entertainment world. We'll be talking to her about that, but what is most surprising about Kent is that she signed on to star in one of the most controversial and buried movies of this past year, American Traitor, The Trial of Axis Sally and the critical importance of this dramatic feature, especially at this moment in time, is the current onslaught of the cancel culture cops and the censorship and disappearance of eminent journalists, in particular by big tech online, and hosts, reporters, and recurrent guests at this station as well, including Chris Hedges. We'll be hearing more about American Trader, the trial of Axis Sally, coming up, and Mildred Gillers, alias Axis Sally, as the only commentator on trial in New York City back then, ever facing the death penalty for being on the radio. But first, Kent, who talks about co-starring with Al Pacino as a morally compromised attorney, Elva, in American Trader, with an excerpt from her book, then Lala Kent. This book is dedicated to those courageous enough to be themselves. When I first started using the phrase, give them Lala, I was describing who Lauren Burningham, a girl from Salt Lake City, Utah, turned into when she was in front of the cameras on Vanderpump Rules. Unlike Lauren, Lala was confident, badass, and always did exactly what she wanted, for better or for worse. Often worse, at least during my early seasons on the show. Life moved fast after I entered the world of reality TV, and sometimes it's been hard for me to make sense of the present moment, let alone the past. Eventually, I reached a point where I had no choice but to stop, sit down with a pen and paper, and take a long, hard look at myself. Lala made for good TV, that's for sure. But she was taking Lauren down some questionable paths. I needed to understand why. As a recovering addict working a program that continues to save my life, I've learned the importance of sharing the most vulnerable parts of myself with the people I love. My beloved family, my life partner, my fellow warriors in AA, and you, the fan. With your help, Give Them Lala has evolved into something I can be proud of. And today, it's a reminder for me to never play a role and to always be the realest version of me. Because the alternative leads to disaster. So here I give you Lala, the real Lala, all of her, the good, the bad, the ridiculous. There are things in these pages that even those closest to me do not know. I know the haters will continue to hate whatever I say or do. That's okay. I'm opening up the contents of my heart anyway. Some names have been changed to protect the innocent and the not-so-innocent. And sorry, not sorry to anyone I may offend along the way. Love, Lala. You're so young with most of your life ahead of you, so why a memoir and why now at this moment in your life? 
I love that you asked that question. And it's, I, I made a conscious effort to not call it a memoir because, like you said, I have so much life to live. So it's really a book of stories, prominent moments that have happened in my life here at the age of 31. And we really venture into when I became, uh, at the ripe old age of seven, decided that I wanted to be in entertainment. We talk about my sobriety journey. I talk about the passing of my dad. So it's really just these life-defining moments put into a book of stories. What do you feel will most surprise readers of your book? Oh, I think I may have given you guys too much Lala with this book. I may have told things that no one asked for, but I think that I share when I was drinking and and why I decided to get sober. I think a lot of people um, were unaware of the things that I had done when I was under the influence and why I decided to get sober. And what do you feel is most misunderstood about you? Oh, I think people take my my quick tongue or my sharp tongue will say mm-hmm. as you know something that uh, is coming from a place that is dark and I think that's my defense mechanism because I am so sensitive that to keep that wall up and not let people get too close I have this sharp tongue to keep me from getting hurt Now, concerning your challenges faced with the media, a recent exceptional film of yours is American Trader, The Trial of Axis Sally. What drew you to that film? I, I, first of all, it's like Al Pacino I'm opposite of. And I read the script and I just, I was drawn to the entire story about Axis Sally. And if this woman was indeed, you know, an ally with, uh, you know, Hitler, or was she not? And I just felt like it was something I I had to be a part of. Now, Axis Sally is an extraordinary film, and it's received little recognition, including the superb performance by Al Pacino. What are your thoughts about that? You know, welcome to Hollywood. There's so <laughs> many performances that, that go unrecognized, or they don't get the recognition that they deserve. But Al Pacino is obviously a legend, and it was a complete honor being able to play opposite him. And what's it like working in a movie with Al Pacino and also with Bruce Willis in Out of Death? And are they anything in real life, like they're gritty characters on screen? They are both legends, and it was kind of surreal to work with, with both of them. They, are, they were both so sweet to me. I... I just felt like I was, I felt like I was in a movie, which sounds crazy because I was in a movie, but I'm like, (laughs) how is it that me, a girl from Utah, is like standing here playing opposite Al Pacino or Bruce Willis? And those are moments that I will never forget. And will you be coming out in any other films or in television? We can only hope. I really enjoy the the art of acting and what goes into it. It's a lot of fun for me to break down a character. So, you know, in my busy schedule, I hope that I always make time to, you know, fit film and television into it. And any last word about your book and what can you say about your choice of title and its significance? Give Them Lala basically means give people whoever you are and be unapologetic about it. So when we were thinking about what the book was going to entail, it just seemed natural to title it Give Them Lala because I'm doing just that. I'm writing all of these stories down on paper and doing it unapologetically. People should read it because you're going to feel all the feels. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. I'm hoping that you'll feel inspired. I hope that people will feel less alone after reading it. Um, I'm, I'm no Shakespeare, so, and I know everyone's shocked by that. It is an easy read. Um, so go and, get, go and get Give Them Lala. The paperback is out. And now in the Arts Express screening room, because cancel culture has accelerated to such an alarming degree since American Trader and Al Pacino's Oscar-worthy performance was unbelievably nowhere to be found at this past year's Oscars, 
Arts Express presents an encore of Pacino's memorable closing arguments in that film. And though a completely different basis in terms of context and guilt or innocence, what it does spotlight is the one side to every story media. First, some scenes from American Trader, The Trial of Axis Sally, then the chief prosecutor, followed by Al Pacino. Hello, gang. This is Midge, sending you my warmest and fondest wishes tonight. Out to the American Expeditionary Forces. You will soon be welcomed by a sizable German greeting party. There's a lot of them, boys. <laughs> what chance do you have? It's not too late to surrender. There's no reason for we Americans to get mixed up in this mess. I don't want to see your lives wasted from fighting with the unbeatable German army. I'm only saying these things because I care about you. In reality, there's no war between Germany and America. Do yourself a favor and be my special guest in Germany. Can radio broadcasters stand trial for what they say on the air and even be hanged for doing so? Apparently, this was not exactly uncommon following World War II, particularly in Britain, and those radio personalities, many of them American, who went on air reporting favorably about Nazi Germany, Italy, and Japan during the war. One such broadcaster, New Yorker Mildred Gillers, whom you just heard, reenacted in the legal drama Axis Sally by actress Meadow Adams, went to Germany prior to World War II to advance her career as an entertainer, and with Nazi leanings herself, was forced by Goebbels and the Third Reich to air shows discouraging the U.S. from entering the war, and then encouraging them to give up. While most of those like her were tried and served prison time, Though some hanged in the UK, the FBI's Hoover was out for blood and wanted Axis Sally executed. And when they couldn't find a lawyer to touch the case, defending her as a mere formality on her way to the electric chair, the FBI finally prodded New York City lawyer James Laughlin to come on board. Though not such a great idea ultimately for the FBI, as Laughlin, played by Al Pacino, was prominent for defending communists and free speech issues. And in our Arts Express screening room, here's a little of Al Pacino from the film, toe-to-toe with the prosecutor in court, promoting those principles regarding Axis Sally, and with an additional reflection on those issues today, while citing Eleanor Roosevelt, Hemingway, Freud, and Plato. defense would have you believe that Ms. Gillers was a victim, but the evidence suggests otherwise. Her friends are Nazis. Her fiancé was a Nazi. Everyone around her, Nazis. She chose to be there. She felt they couldn't lose. She was on the right side, and all she cared about was her own ambitions, her own selfish fame. And as time went on, she realized that she had done wrong. So much so that when the war was finished, she went by a false name until we finally tracked her down. Now, is that the behavior of an innocent victim or of a lying opportunistic traitor? What she did was unnerved our soldiers and brought aid and comfort to our enemies. As far as the Constitution, that is the definition of treason. I ask you, I 
I beseech you, find that woman guilty of the heinous crimes that she perpetrated against our great land. gentlemen of the jury, I'm going to have to apologize for the uh, vague odor in the room that the uh, prosecution left. Uh, horse manure. It'll go away. I didn't get the laughs I expected. I never do. Anyone who thinks must think of entering this war as they would of suicide. Eleanor Roosevelt said that. Never think that this war, no matter how justified, is not a crime. Never think it's not a crime. And that is Ernest Hemingway. But neither of them are being tried for treason. Why is that? Like Miss Gillis, they opposed our involvement in the war. And like Miss Gillis, they spoke out about it. But unlike Miss Gillis, none of them had a gun to their head. And unlike Miss Gillis, their words were not spoon-fed to them by the Nazis. Miss Gillis is on trial for eight counts of treason for reading from a script she did not write, saying words she did not believe in and being ordered to say these words on penalty of death. And now this prosecution would have her hanged. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Heard that before. That's the First Amendment. Mrs. Roosevelt. Hemingway and all the others, they said what they said, and our American laws protected them. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must understand, America is watching. The world is watching us, all of us. If Miss Gillis is found guilty, freedom of speech may no longer be our right. It'll be a privilege. And a privilege can be revoked at any time, for any reason. But let's be honest, right now. Access Sally was not a person. Access Sally was a persona, a character that Miss Gillis played on a radio show. And here's the long and short of it. Nobody died. Not a single solitary American life was lost because of Miss Gillis' radio broadcast. Not one. That's a fact. On the other hand, many a worried parent, American mothers, fathers, they all got comfort because they were hearing about their son's whereabouts through her radio programs. Millions listened to each and every broadcast every week. Yet this unjustly maligned and accused woman sits here today fighting for her life. Even though there's not a single shred of evidence, no evidence, that any of her broadcasts were harmful to this country, or they in some way undermined the morale of our fighting soldiers. Oh, you kidding? Our boys engaged in the rigors of wars. I'm not paying attention to what Mildred Gillis or Access Sally says over a radio program. Some ridiculous song. Did you hear the song? Germany's beating you or something like that, whatever. They were, it was a silly jingle. The slapstick parody. Of course they, they found it ridiculous. They laugh and they mock it and they write home to their folks saying... Did you hear what Access Sally said the other day? Ha, ha, ha. It's a joke. You understand? It's a joke. Of course.
course, she did say things we didn't like. Of course she did. But that was the persona. That was Access Sally. It wasn't Mildred Gillis. Don't forget, that was a part she was forced to play. Who is really responsible for those words? It was the ugly propaganda machine of the Third Reich, Goebbels and Hitler's words, not Miss Mildred Gillis. No. Let's just stop for a minute. And let's just take a look at what's really going on here. Millions of lives were lost. Now, I don't know. I don't know if you can win a war that costs so much. I don't know. But I do know that there isn't a person in this room who wasn't affected by this war. Not a person. So what do we do? Some lost friends. Some lost whole families. Relatives, brothers, sons. My son. I read this for you. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We all know that. We've heard it before. We want justice for this war. We want our enemies to pay dearly for what they took from us. And we're not wrong for wanting this. But we must pause. And we must be vigilant. And where we point the finger, the woman who sits in this chair here is not your enemy. She never was. We cannot let our pain for our loss, our feelings, cloud our judgment, confuse blind justice with blind vengeance. I have to say it. This feels like vengeance. We must not sacrifice this woman at the holy altar of patriotism, a patriotism which very easily could be covering up a lynch mob. Then, the tyranny which we fought against for years will become us. Mildred Gillis, we saw her during this whole trial. We know her. We heard her life story. We heard the little things about her, the innuendos, etc. We heard the prosecution hammering away as he is wont to do, being alone without a passport, foreign country, no place to go, in a war zone, a war zone that became our life. What do you do? What happens to someone who has to live through that? Philosophers, psychiatrists from Plato to Freud tell us Foremost among our basic human instincts is the reflex to survive. That's what Mildred Gillis did. But that's all she did. Survive. Let me ask you, what would you have done? Any one of you. Think about it. If you lived in fear every single moment, of every single day, knowing that your life could end with a single bullet to the head. What would you do? Or another? Picture yourself in that situation. Imagine it. What would you have done with a gun literally to your head? What would you have done? Because if you think for one moment, your choices would have been different than hers. 
Well, I don't think he'd be breathing right now. I just don't. Access, Sally, the persona is over, like the war is over. Mildred Gill is the person, the human being is still here. The person who managed to beat unthinkable odds to survive is here. Give Miss Gillis her life back, her freedom. She's an American. She always was an American. Let's treat her like one. We're not going to kill this woman because she managed to somehow survive, are we? We gonna do that? I don't think so. Well, I hope not. Thank you very much. Rest your honor. And Mildred Gillers, alias Axis Sally, the first U.S. woman ever convicted of treason, was spared the electric chair, instead serving 12 years in prison, converting to Catholicism there, and joining an Ohio convent as a teacher upon her release. And American Traitor, The Trial of Axis Sally, is out from Vertical Entertainment. John Savage. If you're, if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Prairie Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. Coming up next on the show, bro on the Eurocultural beat, Le Pen versus Macron, just feuding neighbors, much is made in the press about the distinction between the two, how did France get to this state, and Le Pen no longer the devil, but rather portrayed in the media as, quote, a woman free and simple, happy at home with her cats. This is bro on the Eurocultural beat. Breaking Glass. Today's episode, French Election Part 2, Le Pen Macron, Worlds Apart or Feuding Neighbors. The polling numbers are close in this final week of the French election, with the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen running just behind the supposed defender of the values of the Republic, Emmanuel Macron. Much is made in the press about the distinction between the two, but unfortunately, what is also apparent is that the distance is shrinking as the neoliberal Macron shifts further to the right while this week attempting to show he's really a man of the people, after having spent the campaign proposing proposition after proposition to benefit the wealthy. Le Pen, meanwhile, has attempted to keep the focus solidly on the French pouvoir d'achat, or power of buying, or cost of living, accusing Macron of both contributing to inflation and oblivious to its effects. Macron has presented himself as above the fray of the steadily lowered standard of living of workers, rural French, and those on the periphery of the wealthier cities. Meanwhile, Le Pen's concern, she wants to keep the retirement age at 62, whereas Macron wants to raise it to 65, lower the VAT tax on the rising price of fuel, and provide a fund for essential commodity purchase for those at the bottom. This concern is not matched by her overall economic positions, which align her even more rigidly than Macron with French corporate interests. 
The choice echoes a bit the U.S., where the usual Tweedledum and Tweedledee, with a putschist leading one party and a drooling geriatric who, when he opens his mouth, draws the world closer to World War III, leading the other, has now simply folded into Tweedledum. The situation in the country is perilous. In the middle, small businesses are collapsing with 35% more bankruptcies this year than last and 107,000 bankruptcy procedures instituted. While at the top, France's lead auto exec, the head of the now-merged Peugeot and Fiat Chrysler, was revealed to have earned 66 million euros in 2021, a figure so outrageous that even Macron, who is desperately searching to sway the 73% of the French electorate that believes he does not understand their problem, urged there be a ceiling on executive salaries, not in France, but across Europe. How did France get to this state? A minor reason is a de-diabolization of the far right, with Le Pen no longer the devil, but rather portrayed in the media as a woman free and simple, happy at home with her cats. Also important has been the collapse of the left, especially in the first round, when it became apparent that the three standard-bearer parties, the Greens, the Socialists, and the Communists, together we're going to poll under 10%. And so rather than, at the end of the campaign, shifting their allegiance to the top left candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, persisted in validating their own fiefdoms, with one party going so far as to call the vote for it a useful vote. Had they swung their votes, it's extremely possible this round would have been a left-right battle of Mélenchon-Macron with Le Pen eliminated. The primary reason for the rise of the far right, though, is Macron's policies. He was accused when he finally took to the campaign trail this week of being the candidate of the 1%. He has championed job creation but neglected to point out that by making it easier to hire and fire, a main reform of his term, he has increased precarity and lowered wages. He has promised to lower taxes on businesses by 7.5 billion euros and affected budget cuts throughout the system so that, for example, infant deaths from harmful foods have increased because of the paucity of officials who can verify the products are safe. As part of this, as one critic put it, attempt to destroy the French social model, the French government under Macron has farmed work out to consultant companies, including the U.S. McKinsey Company, which is now charged with paying no taxes on its earnings in France for 10 years. Le Pen calls her opponent Emmanuel Macron McKinsey. As a result of a move to the right by Macron, who presented himself five years ago as neither left or right, he is sometimes at pains to distinguish himself from Le Pen. On a very dangerous Trump-like issue, Le Pen wants, in the guise of returning money to the people, to eliminate the 138 euro tax the French pay to support public radio and television, the crown jewel of European public media, and an often harsh critic of Le Pen. Le Pen then wants to sell off French public media. Macron, though, has indicated he's also in favor of canceling the contribution, while not going so far as to suggest privatizing the media, but with little public funding, that would be a possible next step. The widespread voter satisfaction with established candidates resulted in an abstention rate of 26%, with one poll suggesting abstention could increase by almost 20% in this upcoming round. One student at a Sorbonne rally after the first round termed this election reactionary blackmail, while another characterized the choice of Macron-Le Pen as being that of unbridled liberalism or authoritarian nationalism. Le Pen's reactionary immigration and discriminatory policies against minorities will make their life undurable and could unleash a wave of hatred and violence in the streets a la Trump. For that reason especially, Cooler heads potentially will prevail, and the far right will be beaten back one more time, but this time by a much smaller margin than ever before. As economic hardships worsen for the majority, though, under Macron's next five years, without a collective coming together of the left, the country moves perilously ever closer to the far right alternative, as a more desperate neoliberalism grasps at any straw to hold on to its profits, including accommodating itself to the most odious elements of the society. This is Bro on the Eurocultural Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. It's April, and for us, it marks the anniversary of both the birthday of William Shakespeare and the day he died. 
the greatest of all playwrights. He was born on April 23rd, 1564, and died exactly 52 years later. So, in celebration of the date, we have produced a new radio version of one of the most intriguing of Shakespeare's plays, Measure for Measure. I call it Shakespeare's hashtag MeToo play, with its up-to-the-minute MeToo themes of sexual harassment and hypocritical, seemingly puritanical, lying politicians, it couldn't be more relevant to today. Of course, we can't broadcast our entire play in this time slot, but we're happy to present to you a key scene featuring two of our Arts Express stalwarts, Mary Murphy and Keyshawn Lucky. So, let's set the scene. We're in 16th century Vienna, and the newly appointed interim mayor, Lord Angelo, has just declared a new puritanical ban on out-of-marriage fornication, punishable by death. A young woman, Isabella, learns, just as she is about to take vows to become a nun, that her poor brother Claudio has run afoul of these fornication laws and is about to be executed. She runs to Lord Angelo to beg him to spare her brother's life, but Angelo insists that the law must be done. However, Angelo is secretly enamored by Isabella, and he wants to see her again. So he tells her to come back the next day, and maybe he will reconsider the execution order. Isabella returns to Lord Angelo to plead again for her brother. And now, what happens next? From Measure for Measure. How now, fair maid? I am come to know your pleasure, Lord Angelo. <laughs> that you might know it would much better please me than to demand what tis. Your brother cannot live. Even so, heaven keep your honor. Yet may he live a while, and it may be as long as you or I. Yet he must die. Under your sentence? Yea. When, I beseech you, that in his reprieve, longer or shorter, he may be so fitted that his soul sicken not. Ha! <laughs> Fie these filthy vices. Tis all as easy falsely to take away a life true maid as to put metal in restrained means to make a false one. Tis set down so in heaven, but not in earth. Say you so? Then I shall pose you quickly. Which had you rather? That the most just law now took your brother's life. Or, to redeem him, give up your body to such sweet uncleanness as she that he hath stained. Sir, believe this. I had rather give my body than my soul. I talk not of your soul. Our compelled sins stand more for number than our compt. How say you? Nay. I'll not warrant that, for I can speak against the thing I say. Answer to this. I, now the voice of the recorded law, pronounce a sentence on your brother's life. Might there not be a charity in sin to save this brother's life? Please you to do it. I'll take it as a peril to my soul. It is no sin at all, but charity. Please you to do it at peril of your soul, where equal poise of sin and charity. That I do beg his life. If it be sin, heaven let me bear it. You granting of my suit, if that be sin, I'll make it my mourn prayer to have it added to the faults of mine and nothing of your answer. Nay, but hear me. <laughs> your sense pursues not mine. Either you are ignorant or seem so craftily, and that's not good. Let me be ignorant and in nothing good but graciously to know I am no better. Mark me, to be received plain. I'll speak more gross. Your brother is to die. So? And his offense is so, as it appears, accounting to the law upon that pain. True. Admit no other way to save his life, as I subscribe not that nor any other, but in the loss of question that you... 
His sister, finding yourself desired of such a person whose credit with the judge or own great place could fetch your brother from the manacles of the all-building law, and that there were no earthly mean to save him but that either you must lay down the treasures of your body to this supposed, or else to let him suffer. What would you do? As much for my poor brother as myself. That is... Were I under the terms of death, the impression of keen whips I'd wear as rubies and strip myself to death, as to a bed that longing have been sick for, ere I'll yield my body up to shame. Then must your brother die. And were the cheaper way. Better it were a brother died at once, than that a sister by redeeming him should die forever. Were not you then as cruel as a sentence that you have slandered so? Ignomy and ransom and free pardon are, are of two houses. Lawful mercy is nothing kin to foul redemption. You seem of late to make the law a tyrant, and rather proving the sliding of your brother a merriment than a vice. Oh, pardon me, my lord, it oft falls out. To have what we would have, we speak not what we mean. I something to excuse the thing I hate for his advantage that I dearly love. We are all frail. Else let my brother die. If not a fedri, but only he owe and succeed thy weakness. Nay, women are frail too. Aye, as the glasses where they view themselves, which were as easy broke as they make forms. Women help heaven. Men their creation mar in profiting by them. Nay, call us ten times frail, for we are soft as our complexions are, and credulous to false prince. I think it well. And from this testimony of your own sex, since I suppose we are made to be no stronger than faults may shake our frames, let me be bold. I do arrest your words. You are, that is, a woman. If you be more, you're none. If you be one, you are as well expressed by all external warrants. Show it now by putting on the destined livery. I have no tongue but one. Gentle, my lord, let me entreat you, speak the former language. Plainly conceive. I love you. My brother did love Juliet, and you tell me that he shall die for it. He shall not, Isabel, if you give me love. I know your virtue hath a license in it, which seems a little fouler than it is to pluck on others. Believe me, on mine honor, my words express my purpose. Ha! Little honor to be much believed. And most pernicious purpose. Seeming, seeming. I will proclaim thee, Angelo, look for it. Sign me a present pardon for my brother, or with an outstretched throat I'll tell the world aloud what man thou art. <laughs> Who will believe thee, Isabel? My unsoiled name? The austereness of my life, my vouch against you and my place in the state? Will so your accusation overweigh that you shall stifle in your own report and smell of calumny? I have begun, and now I give my sensual race to reign. Fit thy consent to my sharp appetite. Redeem thy brother by yielding up thy body to my will, or else he must not only die the death, but thy unkindness shall his death draw out to lingering sufferance. Answer me tomorrow, or by the affection that now guides me most, I'll prove a tyrant to him. As for you, say what you can. My false overweighs your true. <laughs> to whom should I complain? Did I tell this? Who would believe me? Oh, Perilous mouths that bear in them one and the self-same tongue, either of condemnation or of proof, 
bidding the law make curtsy to their will, hooking both right and wrong to the appetite to follow as it draws. I'll to my brother, though he hath fallen by prompture of the blood. Yet hath he in him such a mind of honor that had he twenty heads to tender down on twenty bloody blocks, he'll yield them up before his sister should her body stoop to such abhorred pollution. And Isabel live chaste. And brother die. More than our brother is our chastity. I'll tell him yet of Angelo's request and bid his mind to death for his soul's rest. You've been listening to a scene from Measure for Measure by William Shakespeare directed and adapted for radio by Jack Shalom. If you'd like to hear the entire play, go to our podcast page at artsexpress.podbean.com. That's artsexpress, one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. That's artsexpress.podbean.com. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.